working our way through the book of Revelation, as has been read for you from the 19th chapter, is where we find ourselves this morning. We have put in our, quite a journey to arrive at chapter 19 through this wonderful word from the Lord for the church. And we have found it incredibly relevant, highly applicable and relevant to us. I trust you'll see that with us this morning as we continue through this portion of Revelation 19. To give you a brief kind of recap and bring you up to where we are at in the book as we move forward, in chapter 12, each of us will recall that we were introduced to the cosmic conflict that is taking place since the point, as we look back at the birth of Christ, to the point of the resurrection, and then church history since then, continuing to the time that leads us to the consummation of the age. You recall in chapter 12, those of you who are with us, the drama of the woman who appeared, the vision of the woman of chapter 12, and she is giving birth to a male child. And then, as we recall, and with uh, Julie Parker, who just had Jeremy, and my wife, Adrienne, who is set to give birth to our daughter, Charlotte, in a month, as men who have been there with their children being born, the OBGYN was at the point of the text, Revelation 12, he is a dragon, and he is set in position, as all of you can, with your own picture and image of a child coming forth through the birth canal. And at this point, sitting in the stool, ready to receive the child, is the dragon, I trust, as Jeremy has safely made it. There was no dragon present, ready to eat the male child being born. And I trust that will not be the case at West Penn for me and my family. But that is the case that we see the image being created of the cosmic conflict of the redemptive historical drama of which you are a part. Until the consummation of the age, here is the dragon sitting ready to chomp the child at the point of giving birth. And then we watch through Revelation 12 in this cosmic conflict that In Jesus, God proves faithful. He proves faithful if we consider the birth of Christ in Revelation 12, picturing this cosmic warfare. He proves faithful to the promise of Genesis 3.15, the birth of the seed, who will come. He will be born of a virgin, and he will crush the serpent's head. And we see that God proves faithful in Christ in Revelation 12 to Eve. The promise of the seed. He then continues redemptively throughout the text of Holy Scripture to be faithful there in chapter 12 as we gaze to Israel. The image of 1260 days parallel to that of Im- to the image of Israel in 40 years of wilderness. And it is a place of provision. So God indeed in Christ proves faithful. Though it be a difficult age, he is ever present and ever faithful to his church in Christ. And he does so through Revelation 12, the birth of the male child, faithful to Eve, faithful to Israel. And then we see in Revelation 12, Christ, right before the dragon is able to, he is delivered and exalted on high, where he begins to rule the nations with a rod of iron. God, once again, proving faithful to his covenant promises that he would bring forth a ruler. This ruler will rule over his people, and to the end of his throne there will be no end. So he proves faithful yet again to the great covenant made to David. Yet in this, if you go with me in your mind now, we just traveled from Genesis 3.15 all the way to Revelation 12. As Revelation 12 is telling us about redemptive history from the rest of our Bible, 
So we see God is faithful in Jesus to Eve, to Israel, and to David as an exalted king, a conqueror. And then we watch at the end of Revelation 12, do you recall? The dragon in a fit of rage. Because he cannot do away with the community of Christ. He cannot do away with the church because Christ has been raised. He is exalted, ruling over the church and the nations with a rod of iron. And the dragon, in response to that exaltation of Christ, turns and he turns to call forth greater agents to come alongside of him and to devour the church community. And we watch these images rise through this cosmic conflict, that of the beast. He calls forth the beast first. You remember? He is ruthless. The beast of the sea at the end of chapter 12, beginning in chapter 13. And from 13, we continue to see the development of Satan's rage against the church. So he calls forth the power of the beast. He calls forth then from the beast to continue to empower false prophetic utterances. A false prophet arises Speaking, remember, right at first, this this prophetic voice looks like Jesus. But we find out that the substance is false. The keen hearer recognizes these are all lies. And we saw that, again, that isn't for another time at another place. We recognize, don't we, the presence of false teaching? It's everywhere. So the ministry of the beast and the false prophet continue to wage war. Through offering, hey, we were, I was just speaking with someone earlier this morning about how the prosperity gospel is much like a casino, right? The house always wins. Oh, you don't have any money? Give a thousand dollars. Prove faithful. What's standing between you and God's storehouses is given to me. See the number on the bottom. Send forth your seeds of blessing. Oh, that sounds like he does want me to grow. He does want me to be cared for. He is going to sustain me. That sounds like promise. Wait a minute. So if I give you this, what guarantees that you can then give me God? You can't. And I find that the substance therein, though it might seem like Christ, I find that it's markedly false. Offer me a false hope. And actually manipulating me financially. It is deadly. And it wasn't just alive in the first century in Rome. It continues today. So we watch, this is the dragon's effort to squash the gospel and its effect to kill and persecute Christ's church through confusion, desperation, manipulation. And we see this is the dragon's rage because of the resurrection of Christ. He turns to the woman's seed. He turns to the woman to devour her. So then we watched and then the final kind of actor that comes onto the stage of the book of Revelation is Babylon the Great the prostitute of the nations. And we look at her work through time and we see that the promise of wealth and prosperity, she offers you all kinds of beauty and trinkets in exchange for death. Dine with me tonight. Won't I die tomorrow? It doesn't matter. There may be no tomorrow. Who cares? Dine with me tonight. 
and we watch all the way to the book of, throughout the book of Revelation to 19 and 18 where we find multitudes and nations are wooed by Babylon's promise and they end up dying right alongside of her. And they're mourning and they're weeping and they're lamenting in Revelation 18 to watch the great prostitute burn. Because as goes her inheritance, so goes their own. They are wed to Babylon. Her success is their success. Her demise is their demise. There is no hope in Babylon. And this is the work and the effort of the dragon through the war and the conflict we've been watching throughout the book of Revelation. And we'll watch it continue in our day until the consummation of the age where Christ will return. Finally, crush all of his enemies under his feet. Rescuing the church, being with him forever, wiping every tear from their eye. He will shelter us with his wings and we'll be with him forever. This is the book of Revelation. At this point where we are at together, as we look then at each one of these points of destruction, we are looking now towards the end where Babylon has now, through chapter 18, as I had mentioned to you, now she has already been destroyed. Revelation 18, Babylon's destruction. But as with World War II, they speak, as there were some historians recently interviewed about World War II, and they were asked, what is the primary battle within World War II? What is the primary point in which the tide in the war begins to shift and change? And they were asked, well, there's so many little points along the way. And then there's a difference. Is it Pearl Harbor? Is that the engagement? Is there, where in the point in which th- this, this onslaught of enemies is seen no longer to be invincible, an invincible foe that we cannot conquer and we will die by their hand? At what point did the allies begin to think a little bit differently? This foe is actually not invincible. We have a fighting chance. The greatest collective voice came together to say it was the Battle of Stalingrad, where Stalingrad, the Battle of Stalingrad, was a turning point in the war. And that single battle gave those suffering a sense for the outcome. They are not invincible. They can be beaten. And the historians began to speak of Stalingrad as much more than a single battle or a single defeat. It became a symbol. So it is with the book of Revelation. The church, in many ways, facing beast, dragon, false prophet, Babylon, a seemingly invincible foe, that is ravaging the church of the first century. With the battle of Babylon, Revelation 18, it becomes a symbol of all things to come. She is not invincible. Her call can be resisted. She will be defeated. This is the message of Revelation 18. It's where the point in the book, the tide begins to clearly change. The church is strengthened in the vision that the difficulty with which we experience today will be overcome. Indeed, if we look at the work of Christ through the book of Revelation, we see not only that it will be overcome, our difficult age, 
sin, evil. It will be overcome. But indeed, it has been overcome in the cross. And it is presently being overcome with the gospel. Many are hearing. Many are joyfully coming. Christ is conquering his foes through the gospel. And finally, from he did conquer to the resurrection, he is conquering through the gospel. He will finally and definitively conquer at his return. Now the tide in the book is beginning to change. We're going to look for the next few weeks at the destruction of the three remaining foes. Babylon is gone. The church has a sense. She will go the way of destruction. She is no longer seen as impenetrable or invincible. Then so too, the beast, the false prophet, and the dragon. They stand on deck, getting ready to suffer their fate. But yet, right before we get to the final three enemies of the book of Revelation, the enemies of Christ, before he begins to judicially deal with each one of them, there is this vision that we're going to look at this morning. And it is the vision of the divine warrior who will do the work of judgment. So the church is strengthened. Join with me now in thinking the church is strengthened in God's faithfulness to destroy Babylon. It's as good as having been done. So now we know it is not impenetrable. It is overcome in Christ. And now we know that the three remaining foes to the church of Jesus Christ will judicially suffer their fate. We are moved in between execution to seeing the divine warrior in between. I want to draw your minds to the text of Holy Scripture to begin looking at the divine warrior of God who is doing the work of God in time, destroying all of his enemies. Look with me at the first statement about this divine warrior that we begin in a brief description of our time together, beginning in verse 11, as we are moved with yet another vision just prior to the final execution of the three remaining foes of the Lord. Verse 11 begins... Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. The first image I want to draw your attention to that is important in gathering the total picture of the divine warrior is this image of he who rides on a white horse. We talked last week just briefly about how the book is operating through Revelation 19 in the first portion and Revelation 18 together. If we were to put them collectively, John is writing for us a powerful contrast. And that through contrast, we are seeing most glaringly the power of Christ set against the backdrop of his enemies. And so here also we have a very powerful work of contrast in he who is riding on a white horse horse in this visionary image. The contrast here, let me just say up front, it is a comment about Jesus Christ being the Lord of all history. 
He is Lord of history. And the way that this is told to you is through this image of he who is coming on a white horse. According to the work of redemption in Christ. He appeared. Do you remember the contrast? We'll celebrate just a couple of months, won't we? According to the work of redemption, your Lord appeared. Riding on a lowly colt. His title, servant of the Lord. Unto the work of redemption, our Lord has come. As a servant of the Lord, seated upon this lowly colt, only to go to the grave. To emerge victoriously from the grave. To be exalted to the right hand of the Father. Where he begins, Revelation 12, to rule the nations with a rod of iron. Only to return on a king's horse. full spectrum is set before you. He is the Lord of history. He who entered into time, stood in our place, delivered up for our transgression, raised for our justification, exalted to the Father where He is King of kings and Lord of lords to return on a white horse wearing a crown. The contrast continues, doesn't it? When he came on a lowly colt, he indeed bore a crown made of thorns to give his life for many. Only to come back. Do you see the text before you? Look at he who is riding on the white horse. What does he have? Draped upon his day and the day, uh, draped upon his head in the day of conquering. Verse twelve. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems. At the beginning of the book, you see this emerging king here, victorious as he comes for his church, just as he said he would. Do you remember the book of Acts in chapter one? You too. You were weeping that same day that Christ was raised. If you were there. And you watch him go to the Father. And you stand there saying, no! No! No, 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 no! Where are you? And then the angel appears and says, why, why, why do you gaze to the heavens where he has gone? This Jesus whom you watch to be exalted, he will also in this same manner return. So it is that in the very beginning book of Revelations we're looking, we see no one is qualified. No one is qualified to open the book and open the seals of the scroll. No one is qualified to tell us about the future of history. No one. And John in chapter 5 begins to weep. No one is qualified to tell us what is to come. No one is the Lord of history. No one is qualified. And he says, why do you stand there weeping? 
like the child who is weeping now. Maybe John sounded a bit like it. Because he found that no one was qualified to open the scroll. Weep no longer. One has emerged. And in that vision of five, who we find is indeed qualified to emerge and open the seals, is the lion of the tribe of Judah, Jesus Christ. And then John hears, it's a lion of the tribe of Judah. And when I looked, I beheld a lamb standing as though he had been slain. The great diversity of the work of Christ. The contrast that's continually about our Lord. He who serves and is served as the king. He who bears a crown of thorns in service to redeeming you is he who returns with a royal crown set about his head with many diadems. He who rides in on a lowly court only to appear at the culmination of history as its proven Lord and reigning king on a white horse, royal and victorious. This is the work of redemption set forward in constant paradox, constant contrast. And it's deeply powerful in contrast. So it is that we see here the work of the Lord Jesus Christ in contrast, in his diversity. Let me read for you then 11 and 12 as we continue walking through our text. Then I saw heaven opened and behold a white horse. The one seated on it is called faithful and true and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire on his head are many diadems and his name that he bears is a name written that no one knows but himself. So it is that as we consider this work of Christ in the great diversity of redemption, I want to draw your attention for a few moments that we see divine diversity in the work of Christ. A servant, yet Lord. Sufferer, yet conqueror. It is this divine diversity to the great work of redemption that we see in the beauty of Christ and His exaltation. Yet there is now being expressed to us divine simplicity in the essence of Christ. There is diversity in the work of Christ. Yet there is expressed here divine simplicity in the essence of Christ. This is incredibly important. Divine simplicity in the essence of Christ. I want to draw your heart there together for a few moments by acknowledging what is listed of our Lord here in this passage. Notice what he is called in verse 11. You have called him this yourself. You have given praise to him because of this named attribute or named title of he who rides as conquering king. Notice he is called. This is, this is what is belonging to him. Is, you see there, faithful. He is faithful. Continue with me looking in your text. He is called true. As in truth belongs to him. Notice it continues. 
He acts. How? In righteousness. Because righteousness belongs to him. Notice it is even in judgment that he acts righteous and justly. Because it belongs to him. That is, if we were to say that what we're gazing upon is divine simplicity in Christ Jesus, what we are saying is that God is not, and this is critical for us to get, and I'll hopefully draw your heart in and you'll be deeply strengthened, I trust, by this truth. God is not to be properly thought of as the sum total of various titles, actions, and attributes in Holy Scripture. We are on dangerous ground at that point. Where we say, well, we, we say within God, he is a composite. He is, he is built up of all these pieces we read of him. And then that is God. It's this part and this part and this compound and this complex. And all of these pieces in the sum total is God. And you say, I'm not following, nor do I understand why that's critically important. We'll get there. Because the danger is we can then at that point arm ourselves to do what we must always resist doing. Making a God of our own image. If we say God is at this moment and this part of him is faithfulness. He's given over sometimes to that component within him of faithfulness. And then we come over here and he's given over into this component in this part of truthfulness. So sometimes he's really given over to telling us some truth. And then in the parts that we kind of don't want to receive and the parts that we all admit are somewhat challenging us for us to gaze upon in his actions in execution as we will look through Revelation 19 and 20 as we look next week to the great supper of God where there is mass execution. If we don't go to God rightly, we will come to texts that we don't like and rewrite them. We'll say, well, well, God is a part of this. And so, and then we become armed to do simplistic additions. I like this, this, and this. That's what God is. And I ignore all the others. And then through neat subtraction, I decide in my own creatureliness, this is befitting you. This, not so much. So we as a ministry want to emphasize this. And we want to be excited about this. Because everybody wants to be excited about faithfulness. Wrath, not so much. Let's just, uh, or, or we can do various elements of division. We can play percentages games. Sometimes there's this percentage of wrath, and then there's this percentage of love. Simplicity belongs to God in essence in Christ. Simplicity, not components and parts. He is not the sum total of what he is called. Each of his attributes are simultaneously true of him all of the time. If we extract one, brush it under the table, 
he ceases to be God. We begin to worship an unknown God. Let me show you how this is very important. That is, if I could summarize divine simplicity for you, let me state it to you like this. This is critical. God is all that God is at all times in all of his, my word, godness. God is all that God is at all times in all of his godness. I could say it then in a negative way. God is never free to be not God. Again, you're all staring at me, which I appreciate to some degree. It means we're somewhat getting somewhere. But I have a feeling that you're, some of you are looking at me with a question on the mind more than a solution. Whew, man, this is going so good for me. Perhaps it is the question more so of why is it still important. You said that you would say it is. I believe to this point we're running out of time. Prove it. Why is divine simplicity important? My answer to you of why this is absolutely critically important to your life when you leave this place and have joined with me only for a brief moment in time is because this means that God has not the option. Do you hear me? This means, this is the consequence. If I say to you, God is simple and spiritual, not composite and built of parts and pieces. He is not. Lest you're able to extract what you don't like, what you find. And you make a God of your own image and you worship him unto your own destruction. Unto your own spiritual deprivation. God to you is God of storehouses only. You call 1-800-999-7878 and you send in your thousand dollars. God is not of our own choosing. God is simple and spiritual. All that he is all of the time in all of his godness. This means its consequence. If that be true of what I have stated to you, then it has a sure consequence. The consequence to you of great strength is this. It means that God has not the option to be truthful only some of the time. Do you see that? It isn't the component of truthfulness or the compound of truthfulness that is like this part. 
And so he is free in all of these parts to act in some way that is inconsistent with this part. He is truthful. He is called true. And so he is. It belongs to him. He cannot, therefore, exercise the option to not be truthful. It's who he is. Do you see, if you read the text of Holy Scripture, and your heart is built upon its promises, it's true. All of the time. All of the way to home. Come the expression hell or high water. God is true. He has within him no option to be anything but truthful all of the time. This calls for you to move in faith. It calls for you to look beyond the measure of your circumstance. To be moved outside of circumstance to look to God as being true. Hell has hit my house. Here it is. Look at this. Okay, at this point we are moved into the simplicity of God. Is he true right now in this difficult circumstance? Is his love for me still true right now? Maybe he's exercising his other options. It feels like it. God has not the option to exercise other options. Faithfulness belongs to him. God is faithful even in difficulty. He cannot deny himself, Paul says. This furthermore means neither has he the option to be faithful occasionally. This also finally speaks to the arousal of his wrath. Are you thankful that as you read, and we are, I'm kind of in a sense this morning as I thought about my, my time with you this morning, somewhat arming each of us. I'm, I'm somewhat this morning speaking to you about the simplicity of God through the text of Revelation 19, and I kind of picture myself a little bit as lifting all of your backpacks to kind of get you ready. I'm putting your backpack on, I'm doing a helmet check. Make sure that we're ready. We're going to walk into the great supper of God next week. We're going to gaze upon him, calling the birds of the air to come feast upon the flesh of kings. So I'm getting us all ready. So how is our heart going to receive this? How are we going to grow in the glory of God and the joy of Christ through the rest of Revelation 19 by gazing upon the person and essence of our God? This is how. Not by meager addition and subtraction through feeble common sense through the authority of God. 
So it is as we look upon this, that his wrath, are you thankful as we'll gaze upon his wrath, as we're preparing to gaze upon it next week, we are looking and seeing God's wrath is not then, if God be simple, it is not aroused capriciously. It is not exercised in a fickle, irrational manner. Does that give you strength? It is not that when we watch the great wrath of God and the winepress of God that we need to squirm and justify Him somehow because He's acting somewhat irrational, somewhat over-the-top emotional. That is not who our God is. And we know that by His simplicity, for He is all that He is at all times in all of His godness. He is wrathful, in the same manner of being loving. Do you believe that? You do, because you gaze upon the Lord Jesus Christ and have trusted in Him. And there is no clearer picture than God being full of wrath and full of love than at the point of the crucifixion of Christ. God acting in all of his godness in the cross of Christ where wrath is on display in the manner of love. So it is that in all display of wrath, God is not exercising a component of his person and acting irrational. God is being God in all of his godness. There is mercy, there is justice, there is compassion, there is holiness, there is love on display. Finally, as I commit to you this doctrine of divine simplicity, where the rubber again meets the road, perhaps I have convinced you for a moment in my argumentation of the need for you to grow in your understanding of the doctrine of simplicity. I admit to you this morning, as those of you at Redeemer, that this is a bit different of a message to you content-wise than as walking straight forward through each element of the text. So maybe at this point you are still one who is asking, I love that you're laboring so intently. I can tell you're perspiring. You're really getting worked up. I appreciate the effort. But let me ask one last time before we close our time together, if you could just spell out why are you telling me this? If I could convince you in this last moment of he who is called faithful and true belongs not to his diversity but his simplicity, that he is always faithful, that he is always true because he is himself faithful and is himself true, that I would share with you that he is Bound. God is bound to be all that he is all of the time. And this means he must then act in an utterly self-consistent way. This means that his mercy, his mercy, do you need mercy this morning? Have you struggled maybe when your feet hit the floor declaring with the psalmist your mercy is new every morning? Sometimes we have our feet hit the floor and we 
can't agree, we struggle in our confession of the newness of the mercy of the Lord every morning. But if God be simple, His mercy cannot be suspended for a single morning. Because He is, in essence, mercy. Do you see? Circumstances cannot trump the essence of who God is. He is mercy. He is merciful. It cannot be suspended for a single morning. Therefore, David can say, your mercies are new every morning. He continues, if I, if I could share with you that his faithfulness, it cannot be withdrawn from you. Guess where? Even in the shadow of death. It cannot be. It's dark in here. I cannot find you. You must have abandoned me. Circumstances. Tell me that. Don't read your circumstances. Circumstances. Truth doesn't belong to the essence of circumstances. Truth belongs to the essence of God. So to his faithfulness. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. You are with me. Because you cannot not be with me. Faithfulness belongs to you. Praise the Lord. If we go past faithfulness, can I say to you that it is just like John, who wrote, indeed, the book of Revelation. Also, it is his comment that God is love. Is love. Now, like, it, sometimes he's loving. He is always loving because he is himself love. His love cannot be altered like a suit when you're fat or when you're thin. When circumstances are great and attitudes turn bad. He is not a fickle God standing in the heavens acting and responding to you. He is himself for you. Every day. His love cannot be altered, reshaped, some components there, others removed, waiting for you. He is love. My final piece to you is what each of us celebrate. Along with all of His mercy, faithfulness, and love, it is His grace that cannot for a moment be diminished because of your internal guilt. It cannot be. 
He is not your equal. He is your God. He does not get his feelings hurt because of you and withdraw and diminish his grace toward you. We don't serve one of us. We serve God who is grace. It belongs to him. (laughs) He has not the option to not be gracious. It belongs to him. I want to draw your attention in our last moment together to that which evidence pleads this truth for you and I both. And that is verse 13. Notice that there is a robe present. Speaking of both wrath and love. In verse 13, belonging to God. He is clothed. This one who is riding on a white horse as the conqueror of all things, who we call out in essence as faithful and true. We call him righteous because righteousness belongs to him, and he acts and judges with perfect justice and righteousness. His eyes are like a flame of fire because he examines perfectly and keenly. Nothing escapes his gaze. On his head there are many diadems because no longer is he bearing a crown, but he is bearing a king's crown. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. We'll see that disclosed later in this passage. And he is himself clothed, draped in a robe, dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called? The Word of God. The image of the robe dipped in blood here corresponds to twofold. It's spoken of in Isaiah, and we'll get to that next week. All that I've spoken to you this morning comes in this robe dipped in blood. Each one will experience the wrath of the one who is coming. Bearing a robe dipped in blood. It will either be the blood that is upon his robe, according to Isaiah, that which is the blood that flowed from his enemies at execution. We'll see that prophetic text from Isaiah. Or it'll be the day of redemption where you hide in that blood of robe. That the day of salvation when he comes riding a white horse is a day where you are lifted up to meet him, be gathered unto him. Give him praise for eternity for that robe dipped in blood. With you yourself, do you remember the book of Revelation? Do you remember how you're dressed? You're in blood-washed linens also. And you will celebrate that bloody robe for eternity because it found out you. Or there is this reality otherwise. It'll be in measure of blood stain by those who 
have stiffened their neck against the call to repentance and obedience in the gospel. Do you see the one robe will be an image for two destinies? One will find a soul's shelter in that robe. And one will have their blood splattered upon that robe. Because they have rejected he who is coming. I offer to you at this very moment to be hidden in the robe rather than resisting it until he returns. How can you do so? Paul said to the church at Corinth, I delivered to you what is of first importance this morning. That Christ, according to the scriptures, died for you, for sinners. Exchanging your guilt for his righteousness. I delivered unto you of first importance that Christ, according to the scriptures, died. That he was also buried. And that three days later, he was raised. Why did he die? Begs the question. Paul says, for our trespasses. And he was raised for our justification. If you do not know Christ, if you are looking at the final image of the robe, if you are in opposition to Christ, you don't know him, you're not united to him by faith, then please, don't leave here without speaking to myself or the other elders present. And if you are hidden in him, praise be to your God. For he is himself faithful, true, righteous, merciful, and just, and gracious, and holy, and on and on. For he can be nothing other than than all that he is all of the time in all of his godness for you. Father, I pray that you would take this text, this brief word of he who 